This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, I'm Dan Coatesworth, and joining me on the podcast this week is Danny Hewson. Hello. And Tom Sieber. Hello. So we're going to talk about IPOs. Uh, I want to take a look at what investors think of AstraZeneca's vaccine rollout being halted in parts of the world. And last week, I did promise you some cake. So we'll look at Greg's latest results and we'll talk to the boss of Cakebox about how the business has been doing during the pandemic. There's no cake here, though, Dan. That is the problem. (laughs) We're also going to be looking at the property market, and Tom's going to be updating us on the state of the house building sector. There's some potential good news for people who've been paying too much for their energy bills. And on the day that the government publishes its industrial decarbonisation strategy, I'll be chatting with Helen Mai from the Renewables Infrastructure Group about what that means for investors in all things green. And if you stick with us to the end got a great money story for you later which will make you laugh but first up Dan lots of headlines this week about the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine what's that doing to the AstraZeneca the business well it's very very strange I mean shares in AstraZeneca are down by 25% since last summer now this is despite the company being one of the successful uh, developers of a COVID vaccine. So, you know, arguably it's helped to play a major role in helping to reopen the world economy. So one would have thought, you know, it's doing good things. So therefore people will be rushing to buy the shares, but no, they're down. But what makes it very even more confusing is, is the day before we recorded this podcast, the shares were up nearly 4%, but The same day, all the headlines on the news were about countries halting the vaccine rollout. So one would have thought that that's very bad news for the business. But Hmm. um, yeah, you know, scratching your head's time. But I I, I have, I think, a a rough answer to what is going on. So yesterday's 4% rise was down, um, in my opinion, to uh, there was an investment bank saying it was time to buy the shares. Um, And often these sort of um, pushes from brokers, investment banks can provide a a bit of a push up for the shares on a sort of a one or two day basis. But um, it's also worth bearing in mind that Astra's always said it wasn't going to really profit from this COVID vaccine, at least not initially. So, So really any halt to a rollout in sort of say 12 countries or so shouldn't really have a major negative impact on earnings in the short term. But um, so, so you have to then ask the question, why is it down by a quarter since last summer? And I think it's really down to you know, potentially the shares were overpriced to begin with. And then in December, the company took the market by surprise, saying it's going to spend $39 billion on buying a company called Alexion. And critics basically came out and said, well, you've already got loads of organic growth opportunities. What are you doing uh, needing to spend so much money to buy future growth as well? So, you know, I think it really just goes show that when with investing, simply picking a company that you think is doing well doesn't always mean that you actually make money with it. No, it's it's amazing that dichotomy, isn't it? You would assume that uh, the share price would tank when you see those really bad headlines. Um, but uh, clearly, investors have got an awful lot to think about here. So on to Uber, which has done a U-turn and promised to pay the minimum wage. So Danny, does this have a big impact on other companies tapping into the gig economy? Look, they're definitely going to be taking a long, hard look at this decision and thinking, hang on, you know, if Uber have changed tack, how long can we make a different argument? Now, if you don't know the background to this, 
Uber lost the third and final stage of a five-year legal battle with drivers in February. The drivers claimed they were not self-employed and therefore entitled to the minimum wage, holiday and pension rights, and the Supreme Court agreed. Now, Uber wasn't legally obliged to grant the benefits across the business, but they were facing calls for compensation for missed benefits, so they decided to make today's announcement. Union leaders have said it is a significant milestone, and Uber itself says that they've turned the page on workers' rights, and they really stage-managed this whole announcement today. But a couple of things to think about here. Uber drivers still won't get paid for the time that they spend waiting, and that's something that a lot of people have picked up on. And the TUC says that Uber has really cherry-bits the bits that they want to, uh, to take from this ruling. Uber itself says, look, it's a balancing act. They've been struggling to balance the needs on both sides. Flexibility, which both the workers, they say, and the business wants, and also those calls for benefits. Now, we saw a similar thing happen in California. And after that, we did see prices rise. But a lot of commentators are saying that's unlikely to happen in the UK because competition is so fierce. And in terms of how the markets have responded, Uber's share price down just a teeny tiny bit. So I think a lot of people were very much expecting that Uber was going to make this decision. And it feels like they've done it very much on their own terms. But I would imagine there's going to be a lot of head scratching going on some of these other companies. Um, Uber, obviously one of them, Deliveroo, another one of them, investors could soon be able to buy a slice of the Deliveroo pie. Dan, how would it work? Yeah, so it's floating on the London Stock Exchange and there's a rare chance for retail investors to take part in uh, what's called an IPO. So this is initial public offering or, or really the first chance that you get to buy a company when it joins the stock market. Uh, you need to be a customer and it's actually the more burgers you've you had delivered, the greater the chance of getting allocation because it says it's going to prioritise more loyal customers. But um, Tom, you've been doing research into how investors have actually missed out on big gains when a company joins the stock market for the first time. So what have you learned? Yeah, thanks, Dan. So there, there's this sort of longstanding theory with with IPOs that they're priced at a, a 10% to 20% discount to you know, what their kind of estimated value is. And that's to incentivize investors to back the company before it's got a proven track record as a listed business. Um, so, you know, to take a kind of hypothetical example, if you had a company that was worth 100p a share, it might price its IPO at 80 or 90p a share to get get people involved. Um, because, as you sort of touched on there, it's a rare example with Deliveroo um, of a company that's allowing retail investors to, to directly access the IPO. Um, they end up having to pay a premium to what the big institutions like asset managers and investment banks have to pay. So Shares has done some analysis of, of all the London listed IPOs going back to 2018. And we found that the average price went up by 12% on the first day of dealings before retail investors had had a chance to buy. So that's the, the price at which the shares open compared with the, the issue price, which is the price um, of the IPO. Um, and some stocks are popped by, you know, a lot more than that. So there's a recent um, cannabis related health products business called Cellular Goods. And people might have seen it because it's it's backed by David Beckham. And there was a 300% a difference between the issue price on the IPO and the opening price on the first day of dealings. 
And I think that that's quite interesting, that one, because there was an opportunity with that stock to take part at the IPO. Um, but it is, like I say, it's very rare that these things happen. But, but I was wondering, if investors don't get a chance to buy in at the start, is have they missed out everything? Or, or is there a sort of a benefit in them just sitting tight? Um, potentially, there might be a pullback in the share price after the sort of the initial flurry. Yeah, exactly. So uh, definitely investors shouldn't get too hung up on this, this kind of idea of, you know, a fear of missing out or FOMO, because what, what often happens with an IPO is that you get kind of an initial bounce. But then there are there tend to be sort of investors who have quite a short term um, perspective on, on the investment case, and they will get out. And at that stage, the shares will sort of drift back a bit. And it's the long term investors who then come in. Um, so it's, you know, it, it's not investors shouldn't shouldn't get too hung up on that and they shouldn't be sort of chasing a share price higher thinking you know it's just going to keep going higher and higher so what what, what how could you get involved in something then what are the options um if you if you see a company coming to market you think okay this is it this is the one for me well if if a company is is going to have a kind of retail allocation as they call it so if they're going to open up their ipo to retail investors often the kind of mainstream investment platforms will set up a kind of a little site on their website, a mini site with all the details about the offer. Um, and that will include sort of the, the timings of it. So when it opens up for people to participate um, and you make an application for a number of shares after the offer closes, you'll find out how many you've got. And, and often if, if an IPO has, has got a lot of interest, if it's oversubscribed as, as they put it, uh, you'll be scaled back, so you won't get all the the shares you've applied for. You know, Tom, are there going to be any change to the system? Because there seems to be increased appetite from retail investors. But um, you know, is there a movement to to make things life easier for them? Yeah, hopefully. I mean, it, it, there's certainly some sort of noises being made um, by investment platforms that uh, several sort of major investment platforms, including AJ Bell and Interactive Investor, have have launched a campaign on this issue and are, are saying, look you know, you need to open things up to retail investors. And it, it looks like perhaps some of the regulation around IPOs might be simplified. And that that might be a way of, of getting retail into um, IPOs. Is it cake time, Dan? I hope so. <laughs> Excellent. Let's start with a Belgian bun. Sausage roll seller Greg's just revealed how much money it's made in 2020. Feast or famine for the company, Dan? Well, unfortunately, it's reported its first loss in 37 years as a public company. So um, not great, but I guess everyone's got an excuse uh, called the pandemic for um, sort of a blip on their sort of uh, their performance record. But, you know, interestingly, Greg's is still expanding. So they're still looking to open new shops this year. Um, but it just raises a question. Is, is if we're going to if more people are going to be working from home permanently, um, will that really impact Greg's? Because I would have thought a lot of its business comes from people uh, nipping out at lunchtime from the office to pick up a sandwich and, and a coffee. So uh, what's going to happen now? I mean, they certainly talk about they've seen uh, a big uptake in takeaways, but I, I just can't see them being uh, that being the sort of the sole driver for earnings in the future. So um, I was very interested to see that the, the plans for the new shops are going to be in retail parks, um, which I think is... 
on one hand is interesting because the competition um, for food and drink at the moment is probably restaurants and maybe sort of the odd pub or you might have the odd coffee shop uh, on some of them. Uh, but also, I I always thought that retail parks were sort of slightly going out of fashion. Um, but maybe now that we've had this pandemic and everyone seems to be more comfortable driving places um, rather than going on sort of perhaps public transport into high streets, maybe it changes. But I think it's it, it's an interesting situation and. You know, I think it's perhaps quite good that Greg's has got its eye on the longer term. It's not just sort of hiding under its shell um, when earnings have been sort of retreating. So, yeah, uh, um, sort of a slightly interesting take, but let, let's see where the business is in a year's time. Yeah, the Greg's near me is uh, in a retail park, and I have to say that uh, it's done some pretty good trade, um, lots of cars going in and out. Um, so interesting time for Greg's, and so to Cakebox, which is another company on the stock market serving up sweet treats. It's slightly different to Greg's in that it sells egg-free cakes, which are popular among people celebrating birthdays or other major achievements. Now, we thought you thought, Dan, it was worth talking to Chief Executive Suk Chamdal about the trends that he's seen in the year and whether there's been a rise in people hoping to set up their own cake box franchise. I'm wondering if that means that you got the cake, Dan, but take it away. So we've all been eating sweet treats during lockdown to relieve ourselves of the boredom. Um, So Suk, I'm just wondering what trading's been like generally during the pandemic for cake box. Well, we've uh, continued making progress despite the COVID backdrop. And, uh, you know, as we last reported in late November, which is up to the point I can only comment in on, uh, despite the six weeks of uh, stores being closed in the first lockdown, we increased our gross profit by 5.3%. And we also increased our interim dividend by 15% after paying a special dividend in September. And... Uh, since the bounce back, we've uh, fully repaid all the fellow monies received as well from the government, and we haven't taken any more government help as well. Brilliant. So, I mean, I must confess, I've never been to one of your shops, there's none where I live, but um, I've had some of my colleagues say that they, when they do walk past, there's never anyone there. I'm just wondering, what's the actual purpose of one of your stores? Is it literally just to go in and you've already made an order, you're just picking it up, or um, have they just walked past at the wrong time? Well, we usually have a steady flow of customers rather than the packed shops because our average ticket price is around £25, which is much, much higher than other high street food retailers. And having said that, if you come and have a look at one of our shops on, say, for example, Mother's Day or Christmas Day or any other celebration, you will see a, a good steady queue outside waiting to get that special treat. And this pandemic has enabled us to switch on our delivery services. So now you can send a cake to your mother without actually going to collect it. Brilliant, okay. So um, what, I mean, in your shops, are people actually making the cakes there or do you have something um, away and you're just delivering the end product just to be sold? No, what we do, we have a very simple model uh, where we bake all the sponge in our three facilities in Enfield, Bradford, and the uh, Coventry. And then the, then the shops finish the cake off to the customer's requirement. So they add the jam, the fresh cream, the toppings, the fruit, etc. the message and the personalization of the message. So it's made there fresh in the shop. The only thing that we bake it in, the, in our bakeries and we deliver the sponge to the franchisees. Excellent. I mean, I got the impression that recessions drive people 
to set up business on their own. And given that you're sort of a franchise model, have you seen an increase in people wanting to start their own cake box franchise because of the pandemic? We were born in 2008 or March precisely. And that was the height of the recession then. That spurred me on to start this business. And I'm happy to say that a lot of people have followed my example. And this pandemic has brought to the people who were uh, are determined whether they want to start their own business or go on their own and with the threat of redundancy or with uh, with redundancy and people have decided to take the, the leap and join uh, a franchise because that's much a safer option than start up a business on your own. And I'm glad to say that we've got over 50% of female franchisees who from all backgrounds, including pharmacies, uh, engineers, accountants, and what they've done, they rebalance their life life work balance by joining a franchise, running a business and running a successful home as well. Excellent. I mean, which, just if anyone applied to be a franchisee, if they've got the money, can they do it? Or, or do you actually would reject someone if they didn't have the right qualities? Or? We look for quality and not quantity. Or we don't want to be another feather in someone's cap who's got a five subways, four Papa Jones, and they just sit at home and, and let everybody else run it. We want someone who's got passion, someone who wants to make this their life and want to concentrate on just this business. So or we are very particular in what we look for. And uh, so we do go through a, ro a robust uh, selection process where they have to apply online first, then if that meets our criteria, then they have to get another more in-depth form. And if they pass that, they come in for a presentation. And if they pass that, they come in for a one-to-one -one second interview. And if they pass that, then they're awarded a franchise. So we want, so, and that shows, because we've got very, we've got virtually no uh, second-hand market. So, or if you look at somewhere like other market, they're on their website, they've got lots of, franchises for resale we've virtually got no resale market at all perfect i mean it sounds really exciting so lots going on there with the business so so thank you ever so much for joining us on the podcast thank you very much for your time let's move on to property then uh, a lot of the papers have covered the decision by yorkshire building society to launch a 95 percent mortgage onto the mainstream market relaunch i should say Lots of lenders uh, we saw spooked by the pandemic and removed the low deposit home loans last year. Now, Yorkshire's 95% deal, which will be offered through brokers, will have a rate of 3.99% fixed for five years, and it does come with a £995 fee. It is only available to first-time buyers, and it's got strict conditions, so it means you can't buy a flat with it or a new build. Now, first-time buyers will be able to borrow a maximum of 4.49 times their yearly income. That's up to a maximum of £500,000, but it does exclude furloughed workers. The loan, which offers among the best rates, will only be available through their intermediary arm accord for now. Now, since the budget a couple of weeks ago, when the Chancellor announced a government grant scheme to encourage more lenders back into the low deposit mortgage market, we have been expecting movement. But Yorkshire Building Society says it's not planning to use the scheme. It says it would have returned to the market anyway because of anticipated demand from homeowners, particularly, of course, with the extension of the stamp duty holiday. 
And we are certainly seeing that coming through because average prices of houses coming onto the market has surged by almost £2,500 as buyer demand reaches record levels. That's according to Rightmove's latest house price index. Of course, with more people spending more time indoors during lockdown, it seems Britons are really keen to upgrade their homes. And offering mortgages with lower deposits and extending stamp duty holidays are probably among the reasons that we've seen house prices rise. And uh, it has seen demand reach record levels. So, Tom, having a look at house builders, how are they coping? Well, Dan, if you'd asked me before last week, I would have said pretty well, because most of the major house builders are seeing very high levels of interest and sales activity and have got back on track with construction after building was put on hold in the early stages of the pandemic. Um, but what was interesting was last week, Berkeley's trading update, which which came out last Friday, it wasn't quite as bullish. Um, there were some references, sort of fairly vague references to a volatile operating market, um, you know, referencing sort of usual things around COVID and, and kind of Brexit impacts and also some hints at, at delays to delivery of materials and price increases for raw materials. But maybe the most notable thing was that the value of, of reservations on new homes for their current financial year is actually expected to be 20% lower year on year. And the main reason for this seems to be that Berkeley is, is phasing developments to coincide with the reopening of the economy. And I felt like there were the sort of two potential takeaways from this. So you could look at it and say Berkeley is taking a more sustainable and sensible approach than its rivals. Um, they seem to be very much making high while the sun shines as they benefit from the stamp duty holiday and low deposit mortgages. And that might cause a little bit of nervousness in the wider sector, because particularly under its late chairman, Tony Pidgeley, Berkeley had a really good reputation for calling the property market. The other thing to bear in mind, though, is that Berkeley on average sells much more expensive homes than um, a lot of its peers. So the housing market related measures that were announced in the budget maybe make a little bit less of a difference to demand for them. Yeah, there was a big push, wasn't there, to get to generation rent to be generation buy. So we'll be keeping a close eye to find out how many of those uh, 95% mortgages come onto the market and how house builders fare. Um, Tom, have you ever had um, any money back from your energy supplier? Uh, no. <laughs> that <that's> probably <laughs> says more about me than it does about them. Do you know, I think quite a few people will probably be saying exactly the same thing. However, there is potentially some good news for anyone who finds that they use less gas or electricity than is estimated by their energy provider. Um, how it works at the moment, if you are paying by direct debit monthly, is your provider estimates roughly how much energy you expect to use over the year. They divide it into 12 equal payments. The idea, you use much more energy in the winter than you do in the summer, but you don't suddenly want to have to find extra cash in the winter months. So they smooth it out over the year. The problem, of course, arises if you use less than they've estimated. And until now, if you did find that you'd paid over the odds, you'd have to request a refund. Some providers, I would say, do already do this automatically once a year. And that is what Ofgem are now telling all providers to do from next year. It estimates on average people should get back about £65. So keep a look for that uh, check coming through the door, Tom. But for some people, it can be much more. And Ofgem reckons that suppliers hold a surplus of around £1.4 billion. 
And the ombudsman says that he's got evidence that some suppliers have been using those excess payments to prop up parts of the business that would otherwise be unsustainable. And some commentators have wondered how this change will impact some of the smaller suppliers on the block. Now, Energy UK, which speaks on behalf of suppliers, says they will look in detail at the proposal, Dan. So from energy consumption to energy generation, governments around the world are fine-tuning their strategies to have greater levels of renewable energy. And investors are eager to find out how they can play this trend. So one investment trust that's active in this space is the Renewables Infrastructure Group, also known as TRIG. Yeah, I've been chatting to its chairman, Helen Murray. We talk a lot about the importance of making sure that demand is there for green energy as investment picks up and the role of government, which, of course, has published its industrial decarbonisation strategy. But I started by asking her to explain exactly what TRIG is. TRIG is the Renewables Infrastructure Group. It does what it says on the tin. Uh, We invest in renewable infrastructure. Um, So we have 77 projects across different geographies. Um, That's both in wind and solar. And we have one battery storage facility. So we're in all the four countries of the UK and in Germany, Ireland, France and Sweden. And we generate enough green electricity to power over 1.1 million homes and also save um, uh, about 1.1 million tonnes of carbon emissions every year. Unless you have been avoiding all the papers and any news over the last 12 months, which I, I doubt anyone has been, you will know that ESG, environment, social governance, investing in stocks like this, in projects like this have become, you know, it's a a bit of a buzzword at the moment. Um, There are concerns in some quarters that if you invest in this way, you might not get a decent return for your investment. What about your shareholders? Well, you're absolutely right. There's huge investor interest in this asset class. And we offer investors a chance to save the planet, but we also pay a 5.5% yield. So um, I know it's very important for us to um, how we select our assets and also that we are diversified. Um, So we're very careful with our investors' money. Um, We invest in different projects in different geographies, different regulatory systems, weather systems and technology. So all to ensure that we can generate sustainable returns for our investors, which are uh, green as well. COVID must have hit your projects pretty hard because, of course, demand for energy did fall substantially. Yes, and the energy prices uh, have come down. Um, And obviously, we've had to factor that into uh, our net asset value calculations. But when it comes to actually running the projects, most of our projects, of course, aren't near big conurbations. So they are quite easy to run. We've obviously practiced social distancing. We've had very good operational availability. Um, So we've we've generated well. Um, But yes, you're right. Demand for energy has come down. Um, But there is still great demand for renewable energy. um, And that isn't going to go away. How quickly are you expecting to receive a return to demand? Because I've noticed in terms of um, the dividend that you're expecting to pay next year is in line with what you paid this year. 
Yes, it is. Um, and we um, still uh, have um, an aggressive growth strategy. That's why we're out raising money at the moment. Um, we've just bought a sizable stake in uh, the UK's largest offshore wind farm, that's Beatrice. And we've got projects in uh, Scotland and Sweden we've just invested in. So we still think this is a, a growth market um, and one that investors are very keen to um buy into because effectively um, we provide liquid asset, liquid access to um, an illiquid asset class. So that with our ESG credentials is, is proving popular with shareholders. Now you said the magic word there because of course um, a lot of people do have concerns about investing in illiquid assets. How much liquidity is around if people do decide to invest in TRG? Um, we uh, have very good share trades. Um, we are one of the, the larger ones in the in the investment company, green investment company sector. So we're trading several million shares a day, which is another um, uh, advantage that people see in buying into our shares. And we've always found there's huge demand. Um, people always say to me, oh, well, your shares are always trading at a premium. Well, that's true. They are. But that's because people want to buy them. So, um, you know, people like our revenues, they like our dividend and they like the, the, the um, assets that we invest in. You're talking about growth and your plans for the next year, couple of years, raising extra capital. Um, you must keep a close eye when you're investing in the UK, as you said you've done, on what the UK government, um, what their stance is on all of this. And I know today that they're talking about their plans to reduce emissions from businesses, hospitals and schools. But the one thing that a lot of investors find is that all of these big government announcements are actually quite low on detail. What is it that would really help if the government came out and said, we're going to do this, what would be the one thing you want to hear from them? Well, the, the decarbonisation agenda isn't just renewable energy. Renewable energy is a really important part of that. But I think it's great what the government have said today. They're wanting to decarbonise power generation. Um, and that's a big part of the story. We have to look at the, the whole uh, agenda here. It's not just the generation it's uh, and the use of it. It's the demand as well. So I the, the decarbonisation um, proposals, I haven't read in detail yet. They only just came out about an hour ago. But I welcome the um, what the government is trying to do. Um, we have to embrace low carbon solutions as well as switching to clean energy. One of the big areas of, car, of um, problems is well, carbonisation in, in, um, in the UK is transport, of course, and the electric vehicle agenda is hugely important. Um, so that's a, another really big area that the government needs to do something about. Um, if you look at places like Norway, there's been a lot of government intervention and a lot of um, most uh, electric vehicle sales, most vehicle sales there for private vehicles are electric vehicles there now. I think if you look in the UK, we've probably only got about 1% electric vehicle ownership, although in December, I believe electric vehicle sales were up to 23%. But we need more encouragement for, for people to buy electric vehicles. But obviously what the government have come out today is... Um, a really good start and a really good and ambitious uh, programme to decarbonise power generation over the next 10 years. 
Yeah, I noticed that uh, the Office for National Statistics included electric vehicles for the first time in their basket of goods that they look at uh, when they're working out inflation, uh, which does demonstrate a sea change. But you are right. In terms of generating all this additional power, this green power, it does need to have somewhere to go. The demand does need to be there first. And these great big targets are all well and good. But if homeowners can't see a way to to get hydrogen boilers into their homes or can't see a way to operate an EV from outside their house, that makes life very difficult and does have an impact then on your ability to, to generate money. Well, we're into um, uh, generation uh, wind and solar, as I I said, and we do have one battery storage facility. Um, Green generation is is popular. It's not going to go away. Um, And, um, you know, they're... The government is now talking talking about um, obviously uh, uh, bringing uh, subsidies back in for onshore uh, wind generation. That's really important because if you think about um, the farms that we have in the UK now, many of those, a large proportion of those, and over the next twenty years will have um, come towards the end of their asset lives, and we'll be wanting to repower them, build new wind turbines on existing sites, which are, are very windy. It's really important that we get the support there from the government for that, uh, because we don't want to use, lose all our existing, um, uh, you know, good wind producers. Clearly, we've got subsidies in offshore wind. That's a big growth area for Trig. Uh, we have uh, three um, investments in three offshore wind farms off the UK and two off Germany. Um, and that's a big growth area, obviously, for um, building uh, uh, offshore offshore wind and um, for potential a- acquisitions for us in the in the future. A lot of people will be investing for the future. So, how do you factor in that shelf life of these energy generating plants? It's about twenty five years, I think, for a wind farm. Oh yes, it's 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 rather longer than that. Uh, now we're we're looking at longer asset life towards was thirty years, but that's all part of our asset valuation. And what we're very keen to show investors in our annual report is to how we uh, come to our net asset value. So that includes asset life. It includes power prices. It includes discount rates. It includes you know dividends we expect to pay. And we set it all out very carefully in a valuation bridge in our annual report, so people can see how we get to our valuation. And indeed, um, we do have it externally audited as well, so that we're we're being very clear, very transparent, very open, and also pointing out the risks, as you've mentioned, power prices, etc., that can affect the valuation both up and down. But we don't try to hide anything from our investors. You've talked a lot about uh, wind and solar. Uh, Any plans to diversify more into hydrogen or perhaps carbon capture and storage, all things which are mentioned in this uh, the government low carbon industrial strategy? Well, as a board, we keep ourselves very well informed on different technologies and indeed different uh, geographies. But we also uh, realise that our investor base likes us for 
for what we do and to ensure that we generate the sustainable returns. So we're not going to seek our, our shareholder approval to move out of these areas quickly. We will, we will, you know, look and, and see what the advantages and disadvantages are. And then we'll start talking to our shareholders. Um, and then maybe, yes, we will move into other areas. We weren't, for example, in offshore wind when we launched eight years ago. We weren't in Sweden. But, um, you know, after a lot of debate and evaluation, we've moved to investments in those areas because they are positive for our shareholders um, and generate the sustainable returns that people want us to generate. Huge challenges, but potentially huge opportunities, I guess, and also not just in the UK, but also in other parts of the world. Um, do you look at diversifying more away from Europe? Um, uh, we, I, I can't see that happening in the uh, immediate future for Trig. But it's something we keep on our radar screen. We've got two managers, of course, um, Infrared, the investment manager, and uh, RARES, Renewable Energy Systems, who are the operations manager. They work worldwide. So they obviously have um, good knowledge of different markets. Um, and so that's helpful to us. Um, and clearly, they help guide our, our thinking. But one of the really exciting things I see about renewables and amidst all the challenges how, is how young people really want to work in the industry. There's an awful lot of green jobs coming out here, but that it really motivates young people, be they apprentices or graduates. Um, they want to be part of this green revolution. And I think that's really encouraging for the UK and Europe and a big plus of all of this. So before we finish, we did promise you a hilarious money story. And I'm delighted to welcome Jenny Owen from AJ Bell on what can only be described as a bonkers piece of news. So, Jenny, what is going on? Thanks, Dan. This week's bizarre money story comes from Dashly, a mortgage switching website which has made a fridge magnet they claim could save you thousands of pounds on your mortgage. The magnet, which they've named Blink, is linked to the Dashly app, which you need to download and enter your mortgage and home details into so they can scan for the best offers. The lighthouse-shaped magnet will flash green if you're on the best mortgage deal, and it flashes pink if a better deal is available, even if you're on a fixed rate and need to pay an early redemption charge. They're free to order online at the moment via their website if you're eager to snap one up, and it links to your Wi-Fi to give real-time results. They claim that the average homeowner saves £2,620 a year with their service. Now, I doubt any holiday souvenir or save-the-date magnets have the potential to pay for a summer break, so maybe it's time to clear a space on the fridge. <laughs> I fancy one of those, Jenny, I have to say. Yeah, I, I, I'm just looking at the date on my computer wondering if it's the 1st of April, but it's not, is it? So it's this is real. This is real news. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, that's all from us this week. Next week, don't forget, we've got our special program on ISAs. So thanks to all the listeners who've already sent in their ISA questions, but it's not too late to contact us. So drop us a line with any burning ISA questions at podcast at ajbell.co.uk. Thanks. See you next time. Goodbye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply. 
and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.